Hello everyone, Al from Points of Insanity Game Studio, and joining me today is Chad. How's it going, Chad? Hey man, it's going well. How about you? Oh, not too bad. So, before we begin, I uh, just want to let everyone know that this is another one of those episodes where we're going to kind of be uh, just going off the cuff here. Um, we had another topic planned, but uh, that kind of fell through, so uh, what we're going to do is we... I was actually looking through a a list of ideas I had for different podcast topics. And it was kind of funny when I was looking through. It's like, hey, here's one. Do one about the uh, historical background behind the demons and devils of D&D. Oh, wait, I've already kind of done that. So, yeah, it's been a while since I've updated this list. <laughs> yeah, when we were talking through that list, there was a couple of them like, I think I've listened to that podcast already. <laughs> yeah, and of course there's um, – and there's lots of other ideas. It's just some of them we were thinking about. It's like, you know, that actually might be a cool topic for a future episode, but I probably would want to, you know, have more time to prepare for that. Um, but today's burning question, Al. Yes. Peanut butter, smooth or crunchy? I tend to prefer smooth because, I don't know, crunchy peanut butter just doesn't really seem to agree with me as much. What about you, Chad? So when you make yourself a tasty peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or maybe just a tasty mm. peanut butter sandwich, or any tasty thing with peanut butter, do you prefer smooth or crunchy? Well, here's here. Let's let's make you guess. What do you think I like? I'm gonna say you like it smooth, just like your bald little head. <laughs> no, actually, um, I'm a crunchy guy. Oh. However. You can be too crunchy when it comes to peanut butter. Because we bought a peanut butter. It's it's a store brand, and I'm not going to say what store brand, but we bought a peanut butter. It's a store brand, and it says it's crunchy. It's not extra crunchy. It's not, you know, peanuts in a jar, but that's pretty much what it is. It is, like, so crunchy that there's really no butter there. It's just, like, peanuts laying in a jar. <laughs> when you can't actually use a knife to spread your peanut butter, it's too crunchy. Yes, that does sound like it is too crunchy, but I'm that's sure... That's not what we're here to talk about. Yes, I'm going to say you guys probably aren't here for uh, to listen to us talk about peanut butter. Uh, hopefully you're here to listen to us talk about gaming and other geeky stuff. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Specifically the wait, wait, question... we're geeks? We're geeks? I didn't know that. I didn't know either. Oh, wow. You learn something new every day. Yes, we do. So... Okay, so Chad, now you've been gaming for, yeah, what, around uh, 20 little, years? Over 20 years. A little, yeah. bit, over, little over 20 years, so, you know, nice long time. So when you game, do you prefer to be the game master, or do you prefer to be a player? That's really a convoluted question for me, because when I first started, I only played for about a year, and then I became a game master. And that's what I did for years and years and years. But recently, and by recently, I mean within the last two or three years, I've really wanted to play more than DM. Not that I don't, not that I don't still DM. I do. And I still enjoy doing it. But, but there was a part of me that's just like, I've been the guy coming up with the ideas and running the ideas for so long that I kind of wanted to be like, I just want to play. I don't want to have the hassle of putting it together. Yeah, and so our topic is, why don't some people like to be the game master? And in some of the groups I've, I've gamed with, there were people that never wanted to DM. 
And they saw it more as something you get stuck with. Uh, so it's kind of like being designated driver at, you know, a wild party where it, it's kind of like you got to kind of sit back and, uh, you know, watch everyone else have the fun while you're pretty much while working. Um, so mm-hmm. that is our question that we're going to discuss today. Game mastering. Why is it that some people see it more as a burden, something you get stuck with? And now I, I just want to mention before we begin, if you're one of those people who, for whatever reason, prefers being a gamer as opposed to a game master, you know, that's fine. I, you know, that's cool. I mean, if someone only wants to play and has no desire to run a game ever, that's absolutely fine. You know, in fact, that person, in fact, that person should not run a game because if that's all you want to do is play and that's fine. There are people like that out there. That person should never run a game because they're going to think of it as a burden. It's going to disillusion them as to what goes on behind the screen. And that person is going to end up not role playing anymore. Yep. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. And, it's for reasons like that that I will run when nobody else is willing to, because I already know what it's like behind, you know, behind the screen as you as it's been called for so many years. Even though personally, I never use a screen because my dice are deadly. <laughs> I don't have to. I don't have to cheat. Um, if I do ever cheat, and I have from time to time where I've uh, fudged a dice roll, it's usually in favor of the players. Believe it or not. Yeah, same here. I've been known to do that, and that's one of the things I do like sometimes about having the screen. Granted, there are some roles that I do make in secret. Like, if the thief is going to try to hide in shadows and move silently, I always make those roles. Or at least, I guess I always make the the hide in shadows role, uh, because mm-hmm. the thief always thinks he's hidden. Uh, I mean, I could see letting the players make the move silently because, I mean, if you're not moving silently, you can pretty much tell. But again, a thief always thinks he's hidden. And I think that also adds a little bit of a dramatic element to the game if, you know, you make your die roll and then maybe you give the thief a little grin like, (laughs) you know, you, you can make him sweat like, Okay, is the oh, yeah. master just messing with my head, or did I botch my roll? Or and I'm, you know, do I stick out like a sore thumb? Right. So, what about you, Al? Do you do? You, are you? Uh, I know you've run in the past, but is that what you do regularly, or are you more of a player? I tend to do more game mastering, but I'll be honest. For me, it really depends on the game. When it comes to Dungeons and Dragons. I will run basic first or second. And the main reason for that is because those are the additions I have the most experience with. But not only that, I have more supplements for those. You know, I have Mm -hmm. the Dungeon Master Guide. I have the Monster Manual. And this is one of the reasons that, you know, but like with third, fourth, and fifth, while I'll certainly play them, I'm not going to run a campaign with any of those additions anytime soon. And the reason is, and I think this is one of the reasons why some people don't like game mastering 
is because when you're a game master, there is a bit more of a financial investment. Because uh, if you're a player, what do you need? Player's handbook. Yep, pretty much. You just need the player's handbook. Now, granted, and any supplement, and any supplement that the DM doesn't own. That's true. I mean, I'm just going to take second edition as an example. Uh, again, my one of my favorite editions, favorite games. They had the complete handbook series. So one of the things like that, let's say that you really liked playing fighters. Okay, you'd have to have the player's handbook, or at least you should have the player's handbook. And if you wanted to get the the complete fighter's handbook, you know, that had some material in there that by no means was... Yeah, but back in the day, it was only 20 bucks, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course. But, and... You know, but you you could get that fighter's handbook, and you didn't need to get the wizards or the thieves or the the priest's handbook. Uh, I mean, granted, there might be a little bit of material in there that could be of use to your character, but it wasn't necessary. But again, as a game master, there's going to be a bit more of a financial investment. Uh, well, yes and yes and no. Let me put, okay. let me ask you this: Can you run a game with your DMG? Your monster manual and your player's handbook. Absolutely. But, I mean, you still have to have that financial investment. Especially, mm-hmm. let's look at, let's look at 5th edition. Um, the player's handbook was 50 bucks. Now, yep. I don't have the monster manual for 5th edition or the game master's guide, but I think they're approximately the same price. Yeah, so, I'll tell you more 50 bucks, but... If you bought them online from Amazon, um, even before, because I bought my bundle before the DMG and the Monster Manual was released, and I picked them up for a hundred bucks total. It's not always ne- such a so, that's not always necessarily that um, you you have to spend cover price, especially in today's day and age. And let's say you don't want to drop the money on the bundle of three. That's what PDFs are for. That's what, you know, there's other ways of getting these items that are completely legal. Because you go out and you buy the PDF bundle. I want to say it's like 60 bucks for all three of them. So basically for the cost of a book plus a little tax, you've got all three books. Now, of course, they're in PDF form which means you got to have some sort of a device to use them. But there are other ways around it to, to minimize your investment. Now, I don't know about you. I'm old school. I like my stuff hard copy. I want to smell the book. I want to play with the book. You know, I want to be able to open the book and go, okay, I need to look at weapons. Well, weapons are chapter five, you know. Boom, I'm there. I don't have to sit there and, you know, scroll through the PDF to get to it. But that's me. You know, I, I don't know what your thoughts on that are, but that's kind of the way I see it. Honestly, I prefer, I'm like you. I'm in the same boat where I prefer the physical copy. Now, I'm not against PDFs. I mean, if you've got a PDF that's been properly bookmarked, it's not that you know hard to flip through it. Now, mm-hmm. granted, depending on what type of device you have, I mean, I could see like an iPad or a tablet being really useful. Um, a phone, okay, that's going to be a little harder because you got to keep zooming in. A computer, well, 
the problem is most PDFs are going to be formatted like a page so that, you know, unless you tip your, unless you rotate the PDF and tip your computer sideways, again, it's going to be a bit more difficult to read. That's why when I format my PDFs for sale, you know, I always put them in the landscape format because that way they're nice and easy to read on a computer screen um, and you're not having to flip up and down all the time. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not imposed to PDFs. And one thing I do like about them is there's some books out there that, well, like, let me give you an example. Uh, the Rules Cyclopedia from Basic D&D. You know, nice little book. Gave you a brief overview of Mistara, and it had all the information from basic, expert, companion, masters. So it had a lot of information in one book. Now, the problem is, do you know how much a physical copy of that costs on the secondary market? Now? Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing that's probably a 70 80 maybe $90 book. At least. If not more. Yeah, and if it's in good condition... Yeah, you are going to pay. Uh, at, I, I mean, I would be surprised if you got it for less than 75 When you start getting into stuff like depending on the condition, um, like mm-hmm. my good friend Dan from Radio Free Borderlands, uh, he picked up a copy for me at Gen Con. Um, okay. I saw it in the auction thing, and he paid, like I think it was like 40 bucks for it. And it's it's got a bit of wear and tear, but other than that, it's fully readable. Mm-hmm. I've seen copies of that book on eBay going for 50 bucks that were in worse condition. Like, you know how when you've got, you know, the covers are basically layers of cardboard. Right. And, you know, after a while or after heavy use, it kind of mushrooms out. Yep. I saw a copy of that, of, of the Rule Cyclopedia on eBay going for like 50 bucks, and it was in horrid condition. Now, the nice thing about the Rule Cyclopedia you can buy it from the PDF of it anyway from Wizards of the Coast for like 10 bucks on their online store. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my cat just crawled up my back. Oh, oh, she... oh. <laughs> okay. She's down now. Okay. Oh, damn. That hurt. Yeah. Oh, that's a CR half cat. <laughs> So anyways, only, only has only has rear claw damage. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> you know what really sucks is when you got the cat that's on your lap and it's needing its paws. Yes. But anyways, but the nice thing about the PDF version of that book, like I said, it's ten dollars on their on their online store. I got mine okay. on sale for like five. But even so, even if you do get it a bundle, like you mentioned on Amazon, you could get all three of the core uh, D&D 5th edition books for 100 bucks. you're still spending more than what someone who just needs to get the player's handbook is going to get. Well, so, yes. I, I agree. I, I, can't, I can't refute that point. So I think that's one of the things that can turn some people away from being a game master is because they don't want to devote the extra money into getting uh, you, you know, all the extra books and not only that, I mean, I, I think some of the other stuff it like is optional, like the miniatures and such. And plus, a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the players that I game with, 
they'll usually have their own miniatures. Generally, they'll have a few miniatures for their, you know, for their character. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're a game master, you might want to have miniatures to represent different types of enemies. And I know that's a topic I want to do on a, a future episode is, you know, about minis and props and all the scenery. But that's, again, mm-hmm. something else that can really cost you a lot of money. Now, granted, it can be done cheaply. Um, one of the D&D groups I'm on on Facebook, uh, they posted that they found, at a dollar store, they found a bag of skeletons around Halloween. And they were about the same size as D&D miniatures. You know, they're meant for, like, party favors or decorations for a cupcake or whatever. But it's like, it's like, hey, look, Skeleton Army for only a dollar. And then if you start talking about some of the other stuff, like, again, my friend Dan, he's he's a big fan of the Dwarven Forge stuff. You know, like the 3D mazes and stuff you can get. And, um, I mean, granted, it looks awesome, but if, again, you just think of how much all that costs. And and I know, of course, there's going to be old school people. And, and Dan, if you're listening, no, I don't mean this as a slight against you. Okay, buddy? Um, but, and I know there's people who are going to disagree. Hey, you don't need all those battle mats. And you don't need, you know, the 3D terrain, even if it looks awesome. Yeah, I'll be one of those guys that argue that with you. Okay. Oh, yeah. You I just... am not, I'm not a, I will make, I have a box, or not a box, but like a folder full of graph paper. If I need a map, I'll draw one out quick. Yeah. No. Um, miniatures, not really. Four-sided dice, that's what they're made for. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> I mean, these are just the things that I've learned over the years that you don't need all the pricey, expensive stuff. I would rather spend my money on books than on anything like that. I've got a battle map that I picked up at Gen Con you know, 10, 11 years ago that it was abno- or, uh, it was miscut. So three sides of it are perfect. One side is kind of angled, so it kind of went like halfway through some of the squares. Woo, I got yeah. it for half price, you know, <laughs> type thing. Um, but you know, I have a battle map, and I've got some wet erase markers, and there you go. If you really need a battle map, if it's, uh, you know, if it involves a lot of characters or anything. Otherwise, I run very much, um, I call it like uh, theater Mind's of the eye. mind. Yeah. Yeah. Or mind's eye. That They call it that a lot, too. Um, and, and that's what I find that works well, at least for me and my group. Now, there are some people that have been in my group now for a long time that enjoy that. But at the beginning, they were like, uh... I don't, I don't get it. So where's, you know, and it's just like, you know, wh- where's this creature again? And you just have to, you have, you have to, it's something you work into. Yeah. Uh, theater of the mind. I got into when I started playing because the DM I worked that I played with, that's the way he did. He ran theater of the mind. And as long as you can explain things well enough and keep it straight in your mind, getting the players to work with it is real easy. Yeah, because for me, I like miniatures. I mean, I I don't really do, like, battle map or anything like that. I, but I do like miniatures because it does make it a little easier. Okay, wizard wants to cast a fireball. Can I cast it over there without killing the fighter and the ranger and the paladin? So, mm-hmm. 
you know, or it's also helpful for like the thief in the party if he decides, okay, I want to sneak around for a backstab. Again, it, it makes it a little easier to manage that stuff. So again, I use miniatures, but that's generally it. And um, I mean, I just find they also, I like them. They look cool. Um, yeah. Again, especially when you see someone who does a really good job at painting their minis. Now, again, I'm, I can slap paint on there, but I'm, I am in no, I don't consider myself a very good miniature painter, but again, mm-hmm. my friend Dan, on the other hand, uh, he's actually got a lot of, <laughs> he's actually done, a, he actually does a really good job with his miniatures that he paints. Overall, though, do you see that additional financial investment as being something that scares people away from becoming a game master? Uh, maybe. Uh, it never scared me away. I, you know, now, you know, I'm stable in life, blah, blah, blah. You know, I can, I can budget for these things. But in the past, I've, you know, I, I've sold one game to buy another game. It's just you have to make priorities of what you want. And even as a player, I liked having all the the splat books and things like that. So maybe I'm not the best person to to answer that question, but I can see why that would scare some people away, I guess. And another thing that I wonder if this is something that also scares people away from becoming game masters. You think about it, it there's a bit there's a bit more of a commitment involved being a game master than a player, because. What I've been doing for the a couple of actually a few years now, I've been running games at my local hobby store. So you think okay. about it, okay, we game every other Sunday. So that means that you know, I have to make sure that I'm there. And if I'm not going to be there or if I have to cancel the game session for some reason, I got to, you know, I it's considered polite of course to try to contact my players just to let them know that you know, okay, Guys, I'm sorry, something came up, not going to be there. Um, or if I've got plans, like my family's going to be out of town, then I might have to tell them, hey, I'm not going to be here next time. Does someone else want to take over? So in that regards, there is a bit of a time commitment um, because let's say you've got a group of six people. Well, if you know Joe, who plays the fighter, doesn't show up, you can still work with that. But if, you know, the game master doesn't show up, well, what are people going to do? It's a lot easier to win the game then. Yeah, that is true. (laughs) (laughs) You come back the next time and they're like, we won. And you're like, won what? (laughs) (laughs) We won. We beat Dungeons and Dragons. And it was advanced. (laughs) No, okay, if... Anyone who's listened to my one of my older episodes, uh, "Why Are Some Fans Snobs?" You you probably recognize that uh, tone of voice I just did. And the I beat Dungeons and Dragons. You probably haven't listened far back to. Uh... No, no. Okay, but I, I gotta say that is that is something that um, sometimes needs to be uh, needs to be told to people is that. You don't really win. <laughs> yeah, there is no winning. It's just on to the next, you know, the next adventure. Right. I mean, you sl- you killed a bunch of goblins. Now you're going to move up and kill a bunch of orcs. But just uh, in brief, go back to episode forty and listen to that if you have a chance. But um, 
I, I, how many times have I mentioned Dan from Radio Free Borderlands this episode? Like five times? <laughs> um, yeah, quite a few. Yeah, uh, again, for our drinking game that we're going to make up someday, it's like every time I mention Dan from Radio Free Borderlands, take a swig of your drink! But yeah. just to go back to what I mean, uh, back when I was in high school where when you know, when D&D was still considered that nerdy thing, uh um, we had a couple of guys being, you know, they would come up to us at lunch or something and, you know, they, they thought they were making fun of us and they were being all cool. They'd be like, Hey Al, I beat Dungeons and Dragons. And of course you realize you don't really beat Dungeons and Dragons. So, you know, I, we, I would ask them questions like, okay, what was your armor class? And they'd be like, 724. <laughs> It's like, okay, I would not, it's obvious. You're like, I don't want that armor class. <laughs> it's like, okay. Especially it's back ob- in second ed. Yeah, this was back in the days of second ed. But still, it's like, okay, obviously you don't know a damn thing about what you're talking about. But anyways, uh, to carry on. So I think that's one thing that can certainly drive some people away. Because, uh, again, some people like their freedom. They don't like feeling that they have to be there every week or every two weeks. They like it if they have that freedom where, you know, if I don't want to show up because maybe there's something else I want to do or I'm sick and I don't want to show up, they cannot show up and not feel guilty about it. Whereas the game master, it's in a way I would say being a game master is almost kind of like a part-time job that you don't get paid for. Cause you know, you think about it, not only is there that commitment, but if you're not the kind of person that runs uh, pre-made modules, like I know you said you're the kind of person that you generally like to game master on the fly or yep. you, you, you tend to write your own adventures. You generally don't mm-hmm. use uh, pre-generated modules. Correct. So, I mean, how many hours would you say you, you do you put into thinking out a campaign or uh, even a single adventure? Well, it kind of depends. It it depends on what game I'm running, uh, because depending on the game, if I'm doing D and D, it's really not all that much. If I'm running D and D, it's uh, maybe two hours to every four or five hours that I run. You know, it's basically drawing up the the um, the battles. That's that's what takes the longest with D and D. Now, if I'm running something like Call of Cthulhu, where there's a lot more nuances to the game than there is in D&D, um, at one point I figured it out, I was doing five hours of prep time for every four-hour session. Okay. Yeah, and I can definitely see that from based on my limited experience with uh, Call of Cthulhu, since it is such an investigation-heavy game. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the plots do tend to be a bit more complex, uh, cause not right. too long ago, I w- tried converting a Call of Cthulhu adventure into my second edition campaign that I was running. And oh, good luck with that. Actually, it didn't work too bad because the guy that, the sorcerer that you, it was called this, this, what was it called? Um, the statue of the sorcerer. Okay. And the sorcerer guy that you had to, you know, that was your antagonist in this adventure. 
there was no way the players would able to be physically able to hurt the person. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the way, the way they described it in the Call of Cthulhu setting, it actually translated very easily into second edition or any other game is for, for that matter. So, you know, it, that part of it wasn't that bad, but still I could see how the plot was a bit complex where you had to pick up on all these little clues. And that's one thing I noticed those couple games of Call of Cthulhu I played at Evercon where, if you miss, you know, that one little thing that you were supposed to investigate, then that means you're pretty much doomed. Yeah, it, it very well can be, yeah. Um, so let me ask you this question. As a DM, as a guy who runs games, what is the part of DMing that you dislike the most? Hmm, that's a good question. I would have to say... Probably the thing I hate most is trying to balance out the encounters so it'll be an adequate challenge for my group. And how easy or how hard that can be really kind of depends on the system. And I've talked about this here and there, um, but with Marvel superheroes, where the campaign I ran with that game, the challenge was, well, in Marvel superheroes, well, go back a few episodes, I did a review on it, but Body armor is huge in that game. You okay. Know, if you so the the problem with my group is I had one character that had you know really really good body armor and everyone else didn't have much body armor, so it was kind of tricky balancing the encounters because I had to make it so that the guy who was the the really heavily armored one would still feel somewhat threatened while I wasn't squashing the players who didn't have very good body armor. Right. Yeah, that's that that's exactly where I was going with this is that's exactly my biggest problem is balancing the, the combat that you know, you have a cleric, you have a sorcerer, you have a wizard, you've got a fighter or a couple fighters, you got a thief. Each one of them reacts differently in a fight. So you got to have something for them all to do because if the wizard's sitting there casting spells and the only creature they're up against has, you know, SR25 well, guess what? Now he feels useless because he's not going to run into combat and do anything because what's the point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... Um, oh, good. No, I was going to say, that that's my biggest problem with um, getting ready for running stuff. So, Yeah, so that's one thing that uh, I know I struggle with sometimes. But honestly, another thing that sometimes uh, gives me problems is... Sometimes I find it hard to design um, adventures that I feel are going to be challenging and entertaining enough for the players where, uh, you know, because again, I want to make sure that everyone's having a good time, but I like to try to introduce some role-playing elements and Mm -hmm. um, I like to try to incorporate some problem solving into an adventure if I can. I mean, if I just wanted to do a, you know, a hack and slash-a-thon where it's like, okay, there's a, you know, let's just say, for example, keep on the borderlands. You know, okay, there's not, there's not a lot of real role-playing required for that adventure. It's pretty much, okay, there's a bunch of caves with a bunch of evil monsters. Go in there, try not to get yourself killed. Yeah, pretty much, yep. You know, so something like that's not too hard to run. 
But when you are trying to make adventures where you are trying to make it where it's not just running and cut down everything that moves, it can be a little more challenging because, yeah, you want to make the puzzles that you're throwing at them tricky and challenging, but you don't want to make them overly impossible. Right. No, I would agree. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's really, you know, as, as a DM, the reason I like doing it is because I get to tell my stories, you know, and, and, and being a storyteller, you know, that's what I want to do. Um, I am one of the worst players when it comes to stuff like that. Cause you know, if a DM gets caught up on, I'm like, Oh, well you could do this or, or you could do this. And I really shouldn't do that because a, they're my ideas. And when they implement them, they're going to do it wrong, <laughs> you know, and, and B it's not fair to them because now they're telling my story and they should be telling their story, but it's just, it's the, it's, I don't know if it's the guy in me or what, but it's like, I want to fix that problem. Yeah. And you know, you actually went into the, uh, the question I was going to ask to try to wrap up this episode. So we've oh, talked okay. about some of the things that, we think prevent people from becoming game masters, but for those of us who do enjoy game mastering, why do we like doing it? And I, I agree with you a hundred percent how I do like being able to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think and the so. power. Yes, the power. It's the power. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> oh yeah. Another point that I was I was going to make earlier before we came a little sidetracked. I think another reason that sometimes people don't like game mastering is when you get the splat books. Uh, you know, maybe you're looking through your latest uh, supplement for whatever system you're currently playing, and there's some really cool character class or character concept, and you're like, dude, I want to play this so badly. And if you're a game master, well, it's not, sometimes you can't really do that. Uh, and again, take a swig of your drink, everybody. This is a topic for another day, but there's always the challenge of doing double duty where, you know, you're, you're both the player character and the game master. Yeah. Yeah. But I have to point out, Al. Yeah. You said duty. <laughs> yeah. I said duty. <laughs> it's a good place to end. I think we're kind of. Getting off topic here even more than before. <laughs> yeah, once we start sliding into the toilet humor, I don't think there's any way we can really pull out of that, is there? No, I would agree. So, any final thoughts before we wrap this puppy up, Chad? Other than if you ever thought or felt like you wanted to run a game, do it. I mean, find a group of people that you trust, which is a big thing. Because if you start running and you just got a group of, of, of min-maxers or guys that are just going to blow up your game, you're never going to do it again. But if you actually have that bug to tell your story, to do these things and run a game yourself, do it, man. Yeah, and, and I agree. I mean, I think everyone, even if they don't have any interest in doing a long-term game master thing, I think everyone should try to at least game master once in their life, even if it's just running a one-night session. Because I think sometimes being on the other side of the screen, you know, learning how to game master can actually help you become a better player. 
uh, I think it has the potential to help you see gaming in a new light. And maybe that'll enhance your, your playing style and make things more enjoyable for your group. I would agree. So with that said, we'd like to thank you all for listening and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio. <laughs>